0: Biosutical's Clinical Mastery is a new education series designed to give you the confidence to support your patients and manage common clinical presentations. Each monthly offering includes two one-hour sessions, the first presented by a leading industry clinician and the second offering a case study-led discussion with treatment recommendations. We're launching this series in February 2022, with a deep dive into digestive conditions, which disrupt the foundations of good health. For more details, head to biostiticals.com.au. and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. I'm Emma Sutherland, a Sydney-based naturopath, and joining us on the line today is Kelly Gibson, a naturopath and nutritionist who is passionate about children's health, as well as nurturing new mums and mums-to-be. She's here today to talk to us about demystifying working with kids as a natural health practitioner. Now, I have to say, working with paediatric patients is always the highlight of my day as they are just pure fun and joy. So welcome to FX Medicine, Kelly. How are you? Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for having me on today. Absolute pleasure. Now, I would love to know a little bit about your story. So how did you end
1: up specialising in paediatrics? Well, I think um, I've just always loved working with children. I was a nanny from the age of seventeen until actually until I completed my studies as a naturopath. So, looking after children has um, always been, you know, part of what I love. Mm. And um, it's just a pleasure to work with children, I'm an absolute privilege as a clinician. You know, you're not only able to change their current health situation, but you can change their future by educating and preventing diseases.
0: Yeah, I would 100% agree. I think that um, that that imprint that you can have on that child's life is quite profound. But, you know, you don't have to be a mum to be great at treating paediatrics. I mean, it's just like you don't have to have IBS in order to treat IBS, but you just need to have like this curious and open mind to learning because it's really rewarding.
1: Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I actually loved treating children long before I was a mum. And I think whilst there's a lack of pediatric postgrad education, mm. if you want to treat children, uh, you just have to learn and research and find a mentor that specialises in paediatrics. And that's exactly what I did.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Find a mentor who's already doing what you're doing to help you troubleshoot and help you shortcut the learnings Absolutely. in working with kids. But, you know, how did you actually become successful at treating kids? I mean, it's one thing to work with
1: kids. But how did you become yeah. successful at it? Yeah, well, you know, kids are my kind of people. Like, they're silly and they're imaginative mm. and they're little sponges. So I just always gravitate to paediatric clients. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think I've been good, and, like, I've been fortunate, you could say, that I've got a good rapport with kids. And to be honest, I don't think that parents would come back if I didn't. So, um, yeah, I. I also find that providing bite-sized, achievable treatment goals helps. Mm. Um, It helps with successful treatment outcomes. So, uh, you know, if you've got a successful treatment outcome, then they're going to tell their family, they're going to tell their friends, their mother's group. And, you know, that sort of recommendation is super powerful, um, in clinic,
0: yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I have to say, my clinic's located in the inner west of uh, Sydney, and there's the Facebook group Inner West Mums, and we are constantly yeah. recommended on there because of people's experiences. So you're right; that word of mouth is so important in, yeah. in building a successful clinic and being successful at treating kids. But looking at some research, you know, what research papers have influenced your clinical approach when working with children? Because sometimes it's hard to find good studies in kids. You know, mine was that yeah. 2015 study done by Dr. Mimi Tang, showing that in kids with peanut allergy, using Lactobacillus rhamnosus alongside oral immunization therapy produced, I think it was at about an 80% rate of kids being able to actually eat peanuts. And then there was some follow-up data on those kids showing that they. they. They were still able to eat peanuts. And, I mean, I found that groundbreaking because it just shows that that probiotic strain is moderating the immune response. You know, so what's really impacted you on that research side and bringing it to clinic?
1: Yeah, look, there was this study done in Japan um, which looked at prenatal exposure to environmental chemicals. Mm. And they looked at the cord blood and the maternal urine, um, the maternal blood, and also the amniotic fluid. And the results clear, clearly show that the pregnant women and their fetuses had really high levels of perfluorinated compounds right. and phthalates and heavy metals. And, you know, this study was the perfect example of Walter uh, Krinian, who, um who is a man that, I don't know if you know him, but he's a man that has opened up my eyes to research and learning the effects of environmental chemicals. Yeah. Um. So, you know, as a result, I screen all my preconception and pregnant clients so that they minimize their exposure and therefore lessen the toxicity burden on their future children.
0: Yeah, it's a huge area, isn't it? That preconception huge. health and you know, that, that sort of low tox living movement. You know, I think yeah. once people become parents, it really opens their eyes to the, the the sea of chemicals that we are swimming in and just what they can do to reduce their exposure. You know, anything yeah. from skincare products to, you know, choosing pesticide free fruit and veggies from the local markets. But People are really impacted once they become parents, but the research yep. absolutely backs it up. And that study sounds amazing. We will definitely put a link to that study in the um, show notes. So if you yeah, if you great want, yeah, I think that would be great to have that yeah. Um and. When you're working with kids, you've also got to be practical. So when you do see kids face-to-face, what did you have to set up in your clinic so that you could work with kids? Like what does the clinic environment need to look like to be conducive to paediatric work?
1: Yeah, so it needs to be fun. You know, it needs to be, um, you know, you've got to have toys there um, and toys for all age groups, not just babies or toddlers. You've Mm. got to have you know, maybe some books there for older kids as well or puzzles um, I don't think you can be precious about your clinic space. Yeah. Agreed. You, they, you know, you, if you've got toddlers in there, they're literally going to terrorize the place. <laughs> so you've just got to be open to that and not feel, um, I guess, anxiety of little kids running around. So yeah. you've just got to make sure that it's a fun environment. Mm, agreed. Um, but you've also got to make sure it's a safe environment. So, mm. you know, I, on my days off, an uh, acupuncturist uses my room mm-hmm. and I've got to make sure that everything that he uses is up high, out of reach, you know, like needles and all that sort of stuff. I've got to make sure that everything is um, safe for children mm-hmm. because as uh, as I'm typing and as I'm listening to the parents or the children, you never know who's grabbing other things that they shouldn't be grabbing. So you've just got to make sure it's a safe environment.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and having that space where there are toys for all different age groups is really fantastic. I mean, we had one family come in last week, and the siblings like to come, and they call me the toy doctor because we've got a play <laughs> we've got a playroom where kids can really just immerse in that world of imagination and play. Um, but it's yeah. also really wonderful to observe them as they're playing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's so true.
0: Now, you know, what other things do you need to have? So, what kind of checks do you need to have in order to work in yeah. peace? Cuz there's some
1: boxes you do yeah. need to tick that are important. Absolutely. So, working with children's check is is the most important legal document. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's super easy to get. You just apply for it online and I think it takes about 4 weeks. Okay. But it lasts for 5 years. So, that is really important to have. Um and yeah, I I think you know, just making sure that the room is, is you know, child-friendly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But what about when you're working online with kids? What about when you're working on Zoom like so many of us are? How do you work on Zoom with kids?
1: Yeah, so look, I think at the start it was quite challenging because mm. I see lots of children with eczema or skin conditions Yeah. Um, and just not being able to see that. In real life, mm. I found it—you know—it's quite challenging. But you've also got children, especially toddlers, that will not sit in front of you on a Zoom call for no, an hour. They will not. So, um, no, no. So they come and go usually during the consult. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they're present, I'll ask them the questions. Yeah, uh, and they're usually happy to come in and, you know, put their face up to the screen <laughs> or whatever it may be that I need to see their tongue. Um. But what I also do, and it's really important, is get the parent to send through photos. Yes. So photos of the skin, photos of the tongue, the nails, um, and the poo. (laughs) Yeah, yes. (laughs) Always photos of the poo. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I mean, like most people are working online at the moment. Mm. Um, Yeah. So I, I just feel like as long as you can visualize, you can see the child for a little bit and talk to the child a little bit, um then you know the consult is fine
0: doing it via Zoom. Yeah, I would agree. It's a very different experience. You know, I find it very different compared to when I've got a little person in front of me because of how much more I can observe from them. But it's actually surprising, you know, working on Zoom, how much you can glean from them. And I couldn't Mm -hmm. emphasize enough the the fact that parents need to send you pictures. I mean, the amount of stool pics that I receive is astounding. (laughs) If anyone ever (laughs) found my my phone and look through the pictures, they'd think I was some crazy lady. But it's so critical for us to actually see these things. And I'm always saying to parents, you know, it doesn't matter if you think it's nothing, just send me a pic so I can have a good look at it myself. Or even a little video of the child is also helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. But when you're working with them. You know, you've got the child in front of you and then you've got the parent or the guardian or the grandparents or whoever's sort of caring for that child. How do you decide who to
1: actually speak to? Yeah, it's a great question. Um I always speak to the child first. Mm, okay. You know, even even little babies when they come in, I always oh you know see the babies and give them a little hi um but yeah I always speak to the child first now quite often it will take a little while for kids to warm up Mm. um, especially that one to three uh that eight one to three age group it takes a little while so often you're guided by the parent um and you know, some children may take, some children may not even speak to you the entire consult. Yeah. But I guarantee you at the second one, they're excited to be back <laughs> and they will see you. So often the parents will send me an email prior to the initial consultation. Oh, um, great. You know, yeah, just to talk through things that they want to address but may not want to talk about while the child is there, um, which is totally fine and really helpful. Um, but you always address the child first.
0: I love that because that's also to me, it's just respectful. It's just engaging. And when we're talking about, and we'll get into this in a bit, but when we're talking about gaining compliance and buy in from mm-hmm. kids, they have to feel involved. And I think in my experience, children of all ages feel very special. When you're talking to them, or you get down on their level, and you have a, you know, you're playing with the blocks with them for a minute, or you ask them to do you a drawing and show you, which I do online as well. There's mm. there's a lot of ways that you can really engage and build rapport with that child. Um, I yes. think that no child is too small to be spoken to, but then you've no. also got to navigate the parents and the family dynamics and it's it's a really it is an art but one that you know you just need practice at so if there's people out there listening that are a little bit hesitant about working in this field of pediatrics i just urge you don't be you know just dive yeah. in you know the kids will teach you everything you need to know essentially <laughs> oh
1: absolutely you just have to be open mm. you've got to be open to their world
0: Yes, it's a really good reframe. I like that. Mm. Um, but what happens when, you know, the family dynamics start to get in the way? So how <laughs> do you deal with it? Because some families are extremely complex and you've mm. only just met them or you only have known them for a short time and you, we're not always aware of the full dynamics but you can feel it. Um, ha- how, what do you do when those family dynamics
1: get in the way? How do you address that? Oh, yeah. Look, I do see this all the time. Okay. Um, and I have found that making it really clear on their treatment notes mm. gives the parents the ability, you know, to show the grandparents or even the partner why they have to stick to this plan. Yeah. Um, you know, especially they're spending so much money on yeah. testing and um, supplements and taking the time to remove foods or, yeah. you know, if it's a intolerance. Um, so, yeah, it can definitely be tricky, but I just find – like I'll say a million times, just giving, you know, really clear, bite-sized, achievable goals Mm. that the parents can stick to and the grandparents can stick to. Um, And also kind of painting like the, you know, the worst kind of picture. Like if you don't do this, if you don't remove this food, this is what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. I think that I mean I I've written letters to daycares I've lit, I've written letters to grandparents yeah. you know explaining what we're doing <laughs> and why because sometimes You know, it has to come from the third party and that's you. And I agree with you. Giving them very clear, bite-sized instructions is really important. There's nothing worse than having a very complex treatment plan in a pediatric case. It just confuses everybody and makes things a lot more arduous than they probably need to be. But exactly, most people are a little bit worried sometimes that they're going to slip up or make a mistake. I mean, how do you address those concerns?
1: Look, I think slip ups are, you know, totally normal. In mm. fact, I would say that you know, every food intolerance child that I treat, there's always going to be slip ups. Yes. So I don't, I don't give them unattainable timeframes. Okay. Um. Yeah. And I just let the parents know that flare-ups are going to happen um, if your child is going to slip up and you're going to give your child, say, dairy on weekends. Like uh, you, I am strict with them. Yeah. Because, yeah, I am strict, but you do have to allow for slip-ups. Um, and also y- you need to kind of encourage the parents that it's okay because otherwise they just feel really guilty. Yes,
0: Oh my gosh. Mm. I think parents feel guilty when, you know, they haven't done anything and parents naturally feel guilty because it's such a sense of responsibility when you have a child. But really normalising, I love that you really normalise that sleep-ups do happen, uh, but you do need to move on and and just sort of say, well, that was then, this is now, what can we do now?
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So for you,
0: I mean, paediatrics spans quite you know, a number of years in a child's life. You know, you've got the babies that are under 12 months. You've got the toddlers that are ranging from one to three. Then you've got kids from four to eight years. Mm. And then, of course, the tweens from eight to 12. And then finally the adolescents from 13 to 18. So each of those sort of sub-demographics are quite different and so how, what do you feel are the main differences between those subgroups of paediatrics?
1: Yeah, okay. So, you know, under 12 months, um, mm. this age group is pretty much almost always treating the gut and treatment protocols are really simple and usually given by the mum, um, okay. particularly, you know, in the early months. Um, I see lots of colic and reflux and cradle cap and mm. eczema, you know, skin rashes um but i find that the healing time frame is very quick and then you know you've got the toddlers like the 1 to 3 and this is where i see lots of food intolerances yeah i would constipation agree. Yeah. yeah um again skin stuff uh, fussiness sleep issues but the time frames in this age group are much longer and I think that's because children, you know, they, they've grown into their own little personalities. Um, their favourite words usually <laughs> no or um, or yuck, and so compliance can be really tricky. So I, I definitely find that this is this age group is more challenging.
0: Mm. I, I would definitely agree with that, and I actually. Even though this is a this can be a challenging demographic, I actually secretly really love working with this this these toddlers. You know why? Because they're oh, so toddler. defiant and they're so <laughs> absolute in their defiance. But I love it's like I just love to win them over and to get them <laughs> on board. It's just this ultimate challenge. But they're yeah. also the ones to me that um, you know, they're just they really can make some profound changes. And, and when you're looking at that gut health and how pliable it still is at that age, there's a lot of amazing work that we can do in those areas that you mentioned you see a lot of, you know, yeah. the food intolerances, the constipation, the eczema, and the yeah. sleep. Sleep really does become a prominent issue around that time frame as well. And often, as we see in naturopathic medicine, you know, you might work on the gut, but then you'll see the sleep starts to shift as well. There's all these beautiful interlays between what you can do and then what starts to improve.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Em. Like that is exactly right. Um, Four to eight is also a really great age to work with. Mm. I find that that's possibly the easiest age group. Right. Um, Yeah, and you've got to use the correct language here. So they need to understand what is happening Mm -hmm. and why it's happening and, and how they can feel better. Yeah. So, um, I do think that language is key. And in this group, conditions tend to be more chronic, so harder to treat. Um, you know, you've got behavioural issues, yeah. anxiety, lots of poor immunity, mm. um, which kind of goes across all age groups at the moment, to be honest.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, constipation, food intolerances. I feel like molluscum, right? Every second child has molluscum in yeah. this age group at the moment. Yeah. Um, respiratory issues and definitely poor gut health. Um, But, yeah, I do feel like they're the, the most compliant age group to work with.
0: Yeah, I actually would (laughs) have to agree again. And you know why I think this is? It's because at this age group, their imaginations are wild and they can express themselves quite well. And and if I know, if I can find out from that child what their, you know, superhero is or what their hook Mm -hmm. is, like what do they want? Do they want to, you know, jump like Spider-Man to that? You can really use that languaging and those themes through your language with the child and through your children treatment programs and you do you do
1: those kind of things give us some examples yes so um pretty much every herb mix that I make for this age group I get the child to name it so uh last week on the weekend I had a unicorn cold defender um <laughs> you know a little girl made that up she chose her unicorn cold defender um I always get like Spider-Man and, um, and, you know, for that younger group, I mm. often say Bluey or, you know, it'll be something to do with Bluey or this is Bingo's um, uh, eye drops or whatever yeah. it may be. You've got to relate it back to something that they love. Um, but I always get them involved in naming their supplement or naming their herbs and they love it. I think that That's is a little superpower.
0: Yeah, Cal, that is such an amazing strategy because it gives you instant buy-in and they get instant ownership mm-hmm. of the process by naming it. I love that strategy. That is one that everyone listening can take away and implement, you know, the next day they're in yeah. clinic. That's brilliant. Thank you. And so
1: what I would often do, though, with this age group, uh, in fact, with most of them, um, a week after the initial consult, I'll call and leave a voice message for that child, addressed to that child, and just say, hey, Fred, I just wanted to check how your superhero drops are going. Um, you know, Is it making your tummy feel better? Or um, something like, yeah, how many vegetables did you eat this week? Or how many <laughs> different vegetables did you eat this week? And they love it. They love it. I often get little cute messages back, which is so sweet.
0: That is adorable. And I love that you're following up in that way. That is such a great um, way of bringing the child once again into feeling really important and special and that you really care about Mm. what, you know, about them and the situation and how they're going. Yeah, absolutely. So, what about the Um, tweens? I want, like, what about the tweens? Because how, how do you find this age group to work with?
1: Uh, look, I would say similar to um, four to eight. Okay. But they have more mood, mm. <laughs> more mood um, issues, more anxiety, a lot more anxiety I'm seeing in this age group, lots of gut issues as well.
0: Yeah, I, I would. I mean, the, the levels of anxiety in this age group in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months is yeah. much higher than I've seen in 17 years. I mean, these, these tweens are really impacted heavily anxiety, I think, or they're more um, susceptible to feeling anxious. So it's something for Absolutely. us to, you know, keep our radars on. And, you know, if you're treating adults that have children, maybe, you know, between eight and 12, you know, maybe you could just check in with the parent and say, you know, hey, how's your child going? Do you think they're suffering mm. anxiety or do they need any support? So just doing some checking in if you're, if their parents are your patients as well and you're not currently working in peds, this is an easy yeah. in as well. That's exactly
1: right. Um, and especially obviously children going back to school at the moment. Mm. Um, yeah, I would be asking all my adult clients how their children are going. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's it's absolutely um, incredible how many you know, how many children are suffering from anxiety at the moment? Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns
0: for them, I guess, which yeah, compounds yeah. that. And then what about the adolescents? So these are the 13 to 18-year-olds, and I, I sort of love working in this space because they're like mini-adults, but mm. often they're hostages. And what I mean by that yeah. is their parents have just booked them in, and their parents might be seeing you or might not be, and have just booked, you in, booked them in and kind of plonked them in front of
1: you. And it's a bit awkward. (laughs) It is awkward. Uh, Look, I don't treat many teenagers, but Mm -hmm. the ones I have, um, yeah, like the the parents are obviously always there and they don't necessarily want to talk. Yeah. Which, yeah, so the roles are reversed. You know, they just, the parents are doing all the talking, yet I'm trying to, you know, ascertain how they're going. But the children won't necessarily talk. Look, I, oh, sorry, teenagers. um, I always get emails from parents prior to this particular age group Mm -hmm. Um, and because a lot of it is, you know, for acne, mood, hormonal issues. Yeah. Um, Yeah, like these are, you know, pre-pubescent and going through to puberty and, you, yeah, I definitely see lots of hormonal issues, lots of stress and anxiety. Mm. And one thing with this age group, though, is that, they have their own money, so mm. they're buying their own food, and quite often it's junk food. Yeah, they're coming in with their own ideas as well. You know, yes. they've seen certain supplements that work for other people um, on social media, and um, so they have their own ideas as well. Yeah, so it's a it's a tricky age group to work with, I find.
0: Yeah, it is tricky because if they're a hostage, they're sitting there with their arms crossed or they're not engaging at all and the parent is yeah. talking at you at a rate of knots. But often yeah. I will in those moments and I can see that, you know, it's it's just not going well. I will actually stop and say to the parent, do you mind stepping out while I have a chat to, you know, Sarah, would that be mm. okay with you? And then 99% of the time the parent's like, oh, Oh, okay. And they say, "Oh, yeah, yeah sure. Course. Actually, no, that's fine." And then they leave. And then I oh, will have a chat to said Sarah, and you'd be amazed at what comes out. And you know, it, it, emailing the parent afterwards and communicating in via email before and after appointments with this age group is absolutely critical because yeah. there's a lot of sensitivity. Uh, at this age, and it's sensitivity about, you know, they might say something to you that their parent doesn't want to know, like, yes, I'm buying Kit Kats, you know, after school every day and I'm telling (laughs) mum I'm not. You know, we see that a lot with this age group, but it's that sense of um, independence and identity that they're trying to grapple through making their own food choices. So there's a lot of subtleties in paediatric work between the families and the child themselves. Absolutely, yeah. And so working with all these different age groups, if you had to pick, what ones do you think you get the most success in? Oh, the most success?
1: Hmm. Uh, I would say the four to, oh, oh actually I'd say the baby, so under 12 months. Yeah. Um, but also the four to eight group. Yeah. And I, I think compliancy is is just you know, babies have no choice, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're just syringing it in or um, mixing it into their yogurts. Um, whereas, and the four to eight, like I said, if you are very clear with your language mm. and um, – get them involved, then, yeah, I always have success treating that age group.
0: Yeah, that's such a good clinical insight. So, you know, for everyone listening, if you wanted to get started, maybe start with the four-to-eight age age bracket because that is one that is sort of more open and easier to work with. Um, But what about languaging? I just want to talk about languaging for a minute because I think it's so critical when you're working in paediatrics and how do you discuss things with parents without making them f- feel guilty. You know, they may be saying, don't eat that food, it's a bad food, but saying that may mm. be causing some shame in their child. And, I mean, some parents are just trying to reduce conflict at the end of the day and give their kids nuggets, and other parents might be super restrictive with their kids. So how do you navigate this with the languaging?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, it's a fine line between making the parent feel guilty about food choices and educating them. Mm. Um, I find that understanding chemicals in processed foods, like it's a really good leverage for me to explain to parents why they are better off making their own chicken nuggets or burgers yeah. or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, and I, I just I think like when you have a family – with, say, um, food issues or nutritional food intake, I always ask what their top three go-to fast foods are or their least nutritious foods are, and I offer alternatives and recipes. So okay. I make it really simple for them. Um, most often that works really wonderfully. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it can still be a bit of a challenge. Um, and with the super restrictive parents, I just feel like they need reassurance that it's okay for a child to experience cake and chocolate and, <laughs> you know, like in an ideal world, uh, sorry, unless it's um, something that they, you know, there's a health issue and they can't have that. Yeah. But I just feel like in an ideal world, we would be enjoying everything in moderation and the food, um, like I just explained to the parents, it's not a good or bad food. It's whether it's harming or whether it's healing. And they usually get it most of the time. Yeah, I really love
0: that statement, you know, is this food healing or harming? So rather than good or bad, it's Mm. it's just sort of softening uh, the edges around it there, which is is really important for parents. And, I mean, what if that family's nutrition literacy is compromised? Because when you work in paediatrics, you end up changing the whole entire family meals. Mm. So how do you work
1: with that? Yeah, so in most cases I do have to paint the worst picture mm. and be really, really honest. Okay. You know, if yeah, like the reality is it actually is easier for the whole family to remove, you know, say gluten or egg or dairy. Um you know, that way you're only preparing one meal and it avoids, I guess, slip ups yes. um of problematic foods. But I always offer resources. You need to be. You need to offer guidelines um, and be specific and make sure that you're preparing them with, um, you know, resources and recipes. And, um, yeah, if it's if it's not a food intolerance problem but an overall dietary improvement, yeah. then I just start with simple, achievable steps. Okay. I don't overcomplicate it and work with them.
0: Yeah, I think the overcomplication is where people kind of automatically go, oh, it's too hard, I can't do anything. Mm. Yeah. Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, yeah. I just find providing them with you've you've also got to get them to do their own research. Mm. So rather than giving them four pages of things that is just way too much and overcomplicated, um, give them resources. Give them say three recipes and um, you know, five guidelines and yeah, some recipes to Go and do their
0: own research. Yeah, I think um, resources are one of the biggest things that mm. I get asked for and we provide in clinic, you know, for families and parents because they do need a lot of hand-holding and a lot of reassurance. So really yeah. clear resources is is imperative. Yeah, Now, I wanted to dive into infantile colic because it is so common. You know, 30% of babies are affected by it. And due to the amount of crying a colicky baby does, it is no wonder that colic is associated with higher maternal depression scores in the literature. And, you know, the research on probiotics is Absolutely compelling. So, for example, a meta analysis on Lactobacillus ruteri DSM 17938 showed it. Showed it reduced crying times at two and three Mm. weeks. And the proposed mechanism was that the probiotic had an anti inflammatory effect on the gut lumen. Now, interestingly, research also showed the same probiotic strain reduced both parental discomfort as well as the number of visits to the pediatrician due to the infantile colic. So, really compelling data that we've got and I'll tell you one thing when you have a colicky baby and you have the parents in front of you the parents are usually either crying or Mm -hmm. highly anxious because they're so sleep deprived and they cannot stop this you know insufferable crying that's happening so in your experience what do you find effective for treating colic what are some tips you can give to our listeners
1: yeah okay look I mean I see colic babies every week. There's just, you know, there's a real um, need for naturopathic treatment. Mm, okay. um, yeah. You know, lots of babies are on protein pump inhibitors. Um, and, you know, as a naturopath, it's, it's really concerning because they come with their own issues and side effects. So, um, it, especially prolonged use of them. Yes. But when I would say eighty percent are medicated when they come in, okay. and if you say to a parent, "Okay, we're going to take the baby off the medication," you just see the fear in their eyes because mm. you know what they're going through. Yeah, um, but I definitely use probiotics, particularly um, like L. Uh, Lactobacillus uh, ruteri, mm-hmm. um, and you know, obviously, there's loads of research, so you can show the parents this is why I'm giving this to you. Yeah, Um, Definitely probiotics. Um, I also use a lot of homeopathics as well and herbs Mm -hmm. with colic babies Mm -hmm. and slowly, slowly reduce the medication.
0: Yeah, so obviously collaborating with their paediatrician or GP or whoever they're working with in that environment and and just going slow and really working on the research-backed, Therapies that we have in our toolkit, which is absolutely quite a few. Now, what about this 2019 government report titled Australia's Children? Came out and listen to these stats, right? When we're talking about vegetables and kids, said the proportion of children aged 5 to 14 eating an adequate amount of vegetables in 2018 was only one in 25. 4.4% of kids were eating the amount of vegetables they needed to. And, you know, this age group were eating one to two serves of vegetables a day instead of the recommended five. That's a big Mm. difference. So, My million-dollar question is how do we get kids to eat what they need to in order to meet their macronutrient and micronutrient requirements?
1: Yeah, so look, this is really frightening. I mean, there's definitely a lack of vegetable being consumed by our children Mm. and I find the only way to improve that is obviously with education. So, you know, we're programmed to think that we need to eat breakfast foods and cereals in the morning. Yes. But if we can shift that mindset and Get children um, and adults, everyone, having vegetables across the entire day. Mm. So, um, you know, adding spinach and zucchini and stuff like that to their breakfast omelette, just really increasing their vegetables throughout the entire day Uh, in their lunchbox, ensure that they're having veggies. And a big one that I find is getting kids involved in either growing their own vegetables at home Mm. or, you know, joining a... Community garden, which are everywhere these yeah, days. Yeah. Um, and exploring the farmers markets and choosing what foods to cook and foods to eat that week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also, you've got to make sure that on a child's plate, they've got their safe food, so mm. food that they eat and happy and they're comfortable, and then adding in a new vegetable. Okay. So slowly you're adding to, um, you know, their taste receptors and, um, yeah, I just find that slowly with kids rather than just saying you need to eat this vegetable, you need to eat that. So again, language here is really mm. key. yeah, just putting it there and seeing what happens as well. Um, now I will say though that there's lots of new protein powders on the market for kids okay And you know essentially they do provide macro and micronutrients and some are great. Um, but as an add-on, you know, I, it should never replace their vegetable intake because mm. children need to touch food. They need to eat it. They need to, you know, learn how to cook it and prepare it, um, not just by hidden taste.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there is a degree where you hide stuff and then mm. there's a degree where you're transparent about it. Um, and I always say to parents, you know, if you want your child to eat broccoli Don't give them a whole stalk, a tree of broccoli. Put like just a tiny, tiny piece of broccoli because kids are little. You forget that they're so little. So small, small portions of foods that you're trying to reintroduce or, sorry, introduce are going to work much more effectively.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Slowly. Yeah, slowly. Don't force food on children Mm. um, because they will just push it away.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, particularly in that one to three year age gap graph. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> and so I guess the question as well is how do you actually get supplements into kids? How do you optimize compliance for them?
1: Yeah, look, it can be tricky, especially when you're prescribing supplements that or herbs that may not taste so great. Mm. Um, it can be tricky with compliance, especially in the age group of say two to four. Okay. But There's so many ways you can get them in. So, adding them to juices and smoothies, um, making icy poles and jelly vitamins, purees are awesome for younger kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I do use like tissue salts as well. Okay. Um, And put berries with everything. So, berries seem to mask any flavour of, you know, awful tasting supplements. Um, or herbs, I always put berries with everything. So if you're making, a, if you're putting herbs or supplements into a yogurt, add berries on top, mix it through, okay. um, and usually it does disguise the flavour. Um, and one thing I will say though is that if you are adding a dosage to a dosage of a product, to um, say for instance a smoothie, yeah. add it to a very small amount of the liquid, and then once they've drank all that up, then top it up with more smoothie. And that way, you know that they're guaranteed to finish the dosage required. Mm, great idea. Rather than adding it to a full cup, and you know, the child eating or drinking like a quarter of it.
0: Yes, that is such a good strategy because that's often what happens: is half gets left behind, and then the mm. child's only had half the dose that they actually exactly. need. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing! I love those tips. Now, what are some you know top recommendations you would give to other practitioners when working in this? very fun area of
1: paediatrics. What are just some top tips? Okay. So first of all, you've got to create a fun space for children to feel comfortable in. Mm. That's a really important one. Um, And then create a good relationship with paediatricians or GPs. And sometimes this can be difficult, but I think it's really important to keep the lines of communication open with their specialist. Um. So, I never go into too much detail in my letters to specialists, but I I used to, but they don't actually always read them. So, you've just got to keep it really simple. Um, But having a good relationship with pediatricians is really important. And thirdly, I would say have taste testers of products if possible. Mm, I always make sure, yeah, I just, you know, if they're spending money on products and they open it up as soon as they get home and will call me and say, I've just spent, you know, all this money on products that my children will not taste. Yeah. Will not take. So, um, you know, some things have strong flavors, always get children to taste them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I always, you know, have little uh, taste testers there and they can just have a little taste. And um, yeah, I think that's really important. I love those tips. So create a fun
0: space for kids to feel comfortable in. Always create that good relationship. Keep the communication open with the paediatricians and GPs by writing Mm -hmm. succinct letters. They're busy people. We don't need to inundate them with big, long stories. And then have some taste testers of products that, uh, you know, you can get the kids to try before they buy, so to speak.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so when you first started working in this space, looking back, what's that number one piece of advice you would have told yourself with, you know, all the experience you have now? What would you look back and say? Um, That's
1: such a great question. I would say don't overcomplicate treatment protocols. Mm. Keep it simple and don't try to solve all their problems in the first consultation. I think that most new prackeys will will, um, make this mistake. They're just really trying to please that client and Mm. make sure that they're providing every single bit of detail that they can. Um, It's not necessary. You just need to keep it very simple. Yeah, yeah. I think that is such a...
0: Clinical pearl that we should all be reminded of is to keep it mm. simple, especially in PEDs when there's so much, you know, going on and there's compliance and there's emotions and there's you know parental expectations. That's such a key piece of advice. And then, you know, talking about the new graduate or or that maybe are not yet working in pediatrics. You know, any advice for building a successful and a financially viable clinical practice? Because that we need to be successful. We also need to be financially viable. So mm. how do we do this yeah. in this, this area of PEDS?
1: Any, any tips on your end? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, have a mentor, mm. you know, someone to talk through cases with, someone to help with further your education as well. You don't learn a lot about paediatrics, if at all, uh, in your naturopathy degree. Yeah. So it's always, you need to find a, someone that specialises in paediatrics um, and pick their brains. Yes. Secondly, I would definitely say um, understand the back end of your business. So, you know, don't fall behind in the admin side of things. There's lots of outsourcing that you can do here if you're if it's something that you, um, you know, is not comfortable with, like accounting and bookkeeping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can even get someone to develop your client handouts. Yes. Um, you know, someone to help with social media. Like there's lots of um, assistance out there, virtual assistants. Uh, and make sure you finish treatment notes and emails, et cetera. So this is, a I think, a really big one for new practice. Mm-hmm. Make sure that it's, you know, sometimes days can be really overwhelming and you can be really busy, but make sure you stay on top of finishing off those treatment protocols finishing off your client emails um, and stay on top of social media. Like I have, you know, a bit of a love-hate relationship with social media. (laughs) Yeah,
0: understandable. I think we all do to some (laughs)
1: degree, yeah. Yeah. But it's a really effective and free way of marketing yourself. Yeah. So establish good social media platforms. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, I would say, say yes. So this is such a huge one for me, Emma, Mm -hmm. and many other new practice. Because, you know, saying yes to opportunities can be so daunting and uncomfortable, but when you get past it, that's it, it's just exciting and rewarding. So saying yes to opportunities.
0: I love that. I love that. What a great closing point. Just <laughs> say yes, jump in the deep end and just give it a go. Yeah, absolutely amazing kelly thank you so much for spending time with us today your work with children is certainly so inspiring and you make it sound really easy and i know there's practitioners out there who are hesitant to work with kids so hopefully this has inspired them to just give it a try and for those who are already working with children you've really given us some amazing tips and areas to focus on thank you so much for your insights they really appreciate it Oh, thank you, Emma. It's been fun being on your podcast today. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Don't forget, you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's podcast on the FX Medicine website. I'm Emma Sutherland and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.